I think in the UK, we have to be honest and talk about the fact that there is an anti-Hindu movement. It's been growing for a while. I think the issue is, before we even dive into Leicester and uh, it, it trickled down even into Birmingham, before we go into that, is there is, we're two very different religions, two very different styles, but there is a lot of similarities between in this country, Hindus and Jews, there is almost, we have very, very similar difficulties. And some of it is almost due to the success of our integration. So Hindus in this country and Jews, you know, are obviously a bit biased being Hindu, but if you talk to non-Hindus, they will tell you about how well we've integrated into society. We adopt Western customs, Western culture. And if you look at stats, they will support this. If you look at the average proportionality, of Hindus in the UK, we outperform every other religion. So you're more likely on almost every scale. The only ones that actually come close to us are Jews. They're, there's a few where they do a bit better than us. So every economic scale, we're performing on average better than everyone else. Namaste and welcome to the Bharatwartha podcast. I'm Roshan Karyapa. A lot has transpired in the UK over the last month or so. Queen Elizabeth II passed away and there was a new monarch, King Charles. There's also a new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. She took over from Boris Johnson and of course won against uh, Rishi Sunak. There's also been some anti-Hindu riots in Leicester that made headlines. And there's also a lot happening on the economy front, right? Rising inflation, interest rates, interest rates being cut and whatnot. To discuss all of this and how it matters to India, we have a friend of the podcast, uh, Sunil Sharma of the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth, an organization supporting an outward-looking Britain. We've partnered with the CFOC on multiple episodes before. In fact, we did one uh, quite recently on India-UK relations. Do check out that episode if you haven't already. Hey, Sunil, welcome back. Great to have you again. Great to be back. So there's really a lot to cover. There's uh, plenty happening in the UK right now. So let's start with perhaps one of the most important things, right? I mean, the Queen's passing. Really, Queen Elizabeth uh, II, I mean, in her 70-year uh, sort of a reign, she saw plenty, right? Plenty of pivotal moments, uh, you know, from decolonization of several countries, ups and downs, post-World War, etc., right? What were some of the key moments uh, during her rule? And uh, what do you think was her significance? I think she played a massive role in the UK over the last 70 years on almost every scale. I think she provided stability in so many occasions where politicians, the government couldn't. And she was the one constant that this country had. And you know, she's almost irreplaceable in that sense. I think some of her biggest legacy, her biggest achievements will be providing that stability, that ability to rise above politics, rise above all, all these things and keep the country in great position. I think also a massive part, it will be the her legacy of the Commonwealth. I mean, countries becoming independent, moving away post-British Empire, keeping them still relatively close, still having a relationship. I think that'll be a, a massive part. When she came into being queen, there was eight countries in the Commonwealth. She leaves with 56. So I think that will be one of her sort of great legacies that sh she achieved. But yeah, it's uh, here here in Britain, obviously, it's covered intensely. It was a sort of you know, massive mourning period and bank holiday and stuff. And I think there'll always be a sort of what life was like Queen Elizabeth II and what life was like post Queen Elizabeth. I think she's so monumental for Britain and British history. Right. You know, for folks outside of the UK, could you talk to us about the significance of the monarchy? You know, what does it mean? You know, what are the roles and responsibilities of the monarch and how does it matter to the everyday functioning of the state? The monarchy is for us and many of the Commonwealth countries that still have her as head of state, 
uh, they, it plays a massive role in our constitution. So one of the big things, one of the reasons I am, well, I would say I'm, I'm a pro-monarch and maybe not, I wouldn't say I'm a, a royal fanboy or something, but I, I love the monarchy in general. I think the constitutional value that it adds is very important. So having that separation between the politicians and the monarch is the biggest role. So unlike America, for example, they have a presidential system where they have a lot more politicians in power, costs quite a lot of money, that, you know, they call themselves almost like a republic style. Uh, a constitutional monarchy means that the queen at any point can uh, abolish parliament. She can step in and, and essentially remove the prime minister. She never did. And I, I don't expect King Charles will ever, ever intervene. The idea is it provides a constant, stable role within the government, so uh, within the country. So they don't really get involved in any sort of political matters. It's it's quite ceremonial, their role in terms of what, they, what they'll do across the country. They'll, they will raise issues on certain matters, maybe. We've, we've often used them in diplomatic uh, issues. So the Queen, especially during the 50s and 60s, she was, helped us quite a bit in the conflict we had with Egypt, some of the issues there. So we we often use them in that sort of diplomatic arena where we're having difficulties with countries or relations aren't going so well. So it's quite a ceremonial role in, in a lot of aspects. Technically has a lot of power, but that power is never exercised. And it, it's just very fundamental to the way we govern as a country. So not having a monarch would change pretty much all our laws, change pretty much our whole system, and we would have to go right from like zero and, and restructure completely. Right. Yeah, it's a, I guess it's all, it's a way of keeping the elected head of state in check as well, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's very interesting that way. And uh, yeah, you have someone as the head of the country who could also indulge in some of these soft power negotiations, right? Through outreach and, and so on, as we did see with uh, Queen Elizabeth as well, whether it was Africa or Asia. Now, let's talk about uh, King Charles III. Uh, you know, a lot of us uh, perhaps have a less than flattering introduction of King Charles. I mean, uh, I certainly uh, got to know of him through the whole, uh, you know, uh, Princess Diana saga that played out. Uh, and of course, I mean, there was a recent series that came out, The Crown, which uh, again, did not really portray him in very flattering light. But what is he like? Could you talk to us about how he will be different from uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth II? It's interesting with, with, with King Charles. His polling, opposed to Queen's passing, has drastically improved. So when he when he started, they had it estimated between 30 to 40%. And he's currently more than 65%. So he's, he's, he's shot up in the last couple of weeks. He's a, a bit of a different figure to what the the queen is the queen one thing that was amazing about the queen in some ways was her stability her capacity to not say anything not really get involved in any sort of issues king charles has been a bit different he talked a lot about for example climate change over 30 years ago he gave speeches on it uh, at the time he was almost called a bit crazy and you know these were currently was just theories they weren't really not as much as we know about it now um so he's definitely a very different character to the queen i think that the feeling is I think now that he's getting this, you know, he's becoming king in his 70s, a lot of the sort of fears or the concerns about him being very opinionated, him getting involved in political matters, I think they're, they're kind of left now because I think he's sort of at a stage of his life where the likelihood of him having, being able to make drastic impact is, is, is quite minimal. So the, the perception of him has changed. I think he handled the funeral very strongly, very well. I think it was conducted in a good manner. He spoke really well post the funeral, pre the funeral. So he seems to have taken, assumed the role of, of King a lot better than to be honest, even I expected or a lot of people expected because there were sort of question marks. There was, there's always the concern, which is there's a lot of people who feel like anti-monarchist, anti-royalists, but because they liked the Queen, the Queen was such a popular figure in the UK, you may have the sentiment, but 
you like the queen, so you necessarily wouldn't say those things, or you wouldn't push for republics, or all that sort of stuff. So there's a massive concern with her passing that. You lose that popularity that that individual had, and people start to attack the crown, the, the, the monarchs. And for now, it looks like King Charles has really battered that away with his sort of professionalism but it'll it, it, be interesting you know i, I don't I, I don't think he'll have the same fanhood or the same come anywhere near what his mother did in terms of reputation and stuff but i think he'll get a, a decent run at it and like i said i think he's entering it at an age where maybe 20 years ago i think this would have been a much bigger concern a bit more of a worry post princess diana all that sort of stuff happening i think that would have been a real sticky period for him i think now because it's so far since of all of that at his age I don't envisage anything really drastic happening with him. I think it'd be a, a fairly boring, just kind of very constitutional ceremonial role, which is, I think, what we want to see. And if we speak about India's relationship with the crown, right, we've had a sort of a dicey relationship, right? Queen Elizabeth herself, I think, visited India thrice during her time. And then King Charles has been here more than a few times, right? I think around eight or ten times. And uh, they've they've spoken rather well about India. But at the same time, we have the albatross of colonialism of 200 years of British rule in India. Given that, you know, I mean, we're dealing with a modern nation of UK as well, right? I mean, how does this play out? You know, I mean, uh, what do the Indians in the UK think about these things? So generally, Indians are quite mixed on this, even in, in the UK. I think there is a general feeling of the understanding of the constitutional. So the, the big, the country I use the the biggest comparison to is probably Australia. They're the ones who, where the, the Queen is still the head of state. And they basically went through the 90s, a, a referendum. So unlike even when they went independent, they still kept the Queen as their head of state. And they held a referendum in the 90s where they basically asked, should the Queen continue to be head of state? You know, she doesn't live here, you know, ex colonial or all, all that sort of stuff and they had a massive debate about it it went on for you know, a good few years ultimately held a referendum and ultimately the referendum failed in the sense that they decided we want to keep the queen and not remove her and the main reason was people will accept colonialism was wrong there's so many things that in 2022 we look what the british empire did was wrong but the the biggest issue that they faced in australia i think it's the practical element was the alternative so they didn't view the alternative as better to what it is now. So I think there's a bit of a pragmatic element, even with it, British Indians and, and Indians here, which is what is the alternative? Is it really better than what we have? I think people still feel maybe a bit uneasy about some of the being born into a family, you, you assume this role and this power. Though I think there is that sentiment there. There is also the, the historic sentiment as well. I would say large amounts of people have probably moved on from it. And I think... We're moving more to the practical element, which is what is the alternative and is that alternative better or worse? And I think we generally are in agreement it's probably worse. So I, I think it's, it's fairly mixed. That said, during the funeral and stuff, I think the great thing about that whole tragedy is how it did really unite people, British, Indians, British, whatever the, whatever the ethnicity, races. It genuinely seemed to really unite people, even people who aren't fond of the monarchy, which is was something really good to see. Yeah, the interesting thing is that during, you know, Queen Elizabeth's time, I mean, there was, you know, rapid decolonization, of course. And also, I mean, I, I saw on Twitter, especially a lot of calls for the return of the Kohinoor. And uh, my contention is that, that that's not going to happen through some emotional badgering as such, right? I mean, it's going to happen through diplomatic negotiations. And we have to learn to deal with the modern state of the UK, even with the, the fact that, you know, there is the 200 years of history and whatnot. So one of the last engagements of the Queen was uh, meeting the new prime minister, uh, Liz Truss. She's taking over at a time when the country is undergoing 
you know, massive crisis triggered by, you know, let's say the Russia-Ukraine conflict and rising in energy bills, depreciating pound, whatnot, right? I mean, perhaps less than ideal circumstances for someone to take the hot seat. Could you give us a sense of, you know, her career as a politician? How did she start? How did she rise to the highest levels? And uh, what can we expect from her? I think that the thing with Liz Truss, of all the candidates that went for the leadership race, so after Boris Johnson resigned, she was by far the most experienced. She's got over 10 years experience in the cabinet, so she's held senior portfolios for the last five, six, seven years, heavily experienced, worked in the foreign secretary, worked in other roles within cabinet, so very an experienced person when it comes to UK politics. Her career is an interesting one, so she comes from a very working class family in Yorkshire, a north part of, of, of England, and quite in some ways, unique circumstances. She, funny enough, when she was younger, she actually campaigned for Lib Dems, which is a, a, another party here in the UK. They're sort of more, they're like in between Labour and Conservatives, what they position themselves as. But then in, anyway, as she, she got older, she joined the Conservative Party and, and, and campaigned pretty much her, most of her, her whole adult life, to be honest, as different sort of running for MP, become Member of Parliament, and then working her way up to various cabinet positions now to ultimately Prime Minister. It's a big, it's a really good question in a sense of, you know, what does she believe in and who is she? Because that was a massive question mark during the leadership race. It was, she's positioned herself in different takes. We didn't really fully know exactly what she, we had an idea and what's come to fruition, which is what a lot of members, people like myself, who did end up voting for her in, in the leadership races, she's come back with some pretty conservative policies, a big issue that we've kind of said in this country for the last maybe five, six, seven years is, although it's been a conservative government, we've not really had many conservative policies, which is stuff like, you know, low taxes, um, stuff like encouraging small business, decreasing corporation tax, these kind of conservative basic principles haven't really happened. And she's finally done those things. So a lot of that base is, is very happy with that initial start. I think inflation, Russia, Ukraine, I think it's, it's a really tough period. And then again, when, when Boris came in, you know, it wasn't too long till after he had to deal with the, the pandemic. So, you know, so it's an opportunity for her in, in some ways. I think the good thing for her is it's not just us suffering, it's pretty much global. You know, you look at the, our Europe is obviously our, the ones we do the most comparisons with. And you look at their state, I think Holland has just come out with 17% inflation. Germany is being predicted to have blackouts in terms of energy by the end of this year. So on relative comparison terms, it's, you know, we're not doing that badly. But obviously, you know, as, as a nation to see inflation so high, cost of living being a massive issue, it is concerning. And it will be interesting to see what, what she does in the coming weeks and months. Right. On the economic front, right, I mean, uh, with uh, as much uh, inflation, the Bank of England decided to do something rather extraordinary, right, which is cut interest rates. And there's a fair bit of backlash on that with uh, a lot of people saying that it goes against conventional economic sense to do that. So what is the thinking right now in terms of reining the economy, you know, bringing Britain back on track? What do you plan to do on the economic front? I think what the general sort of plan is based on wealth creation rather than wealth redistribution. I think this is the, the key thing that this trust is, is trying to do and she needs to do, which is essentially reposition the country to a point where we're no longer sitting at increasing taxes. We're looking to bring in extra wealth into this country, whether it's uh, externally with, with our foreign imports. We're encouraging businesses homegrown to grow, to actually go from small to medium. We're encouraging business to invest in this country. So I think that's her kind of plan in terms of 
how to tackle this all these issues is by cutting taxes we increase the wealth we can generate we encourage people to climb up the more aspirational side of things in terms of wanting to get paid more wanting to uh, take on extra courses maybe to get more money that kind of aspirational side of things which has really been neglected for the last 10 15 years in this country i think that is her position on her economic kind of philosophy and style it's a very margaret thatcher style kind of proposals what she's doing nowhere near as extreme as that but still that kind of methodology and it's very different from what we've seen in the last five ten years across europe europe has not been like this at all we've seen high taxes throughout not just our country across europe incredibly low interest rates all the things that she's proposing have gone against that and that's i think one of the reasons we're seeing such a big pushback from a lot of these institutions western sort of uh, institutions because they're not used to it. It seems very peculiar now, if you look at the last five to 10 year history, if you look at the economic history of the last 30, 40 years, it's not that peculiar, but at the moment, it's definitely something that's uh, a bit more, causing a bit more tension, if you like, within the party and people. Right. And what does this mean for India? You know, what does Prime Minister Liz Truss mean for India? Because Prime Minister Johnson obviously had a very close uh, relationship with uh, Prime Minister Modi. You know, we spoke about this on the last episode as well. They have, you know, a good amount of camaraderie. And uh, given that, you know, we're looking at the FTA being signed at the end of the year, hopefully. So what is her view of India and what can India expect from her? I think Boris Johnson and uh, and Modi had almost like a, you know, it seemed like a genuine special kind of relationship between the two. I think they made massive strides in improving those relations. Typically the West, Britain in particular, we have sided a lot more with India's neighboring country and Pakistan. And I think that really kind of changed with Boris Johnson and that kind of movement. I'd say Trump in America also was part of that sort of movement. I think the three of them made really massive strides. The good news with Liz Truss is that FDR agreement was really spearheaded by her. She was the foreign secretary when they were sort of making these plans. So she would have been heavily involved in organizing that. So I think her being prime minister, if anything, is probably of all the candidates, again, probably the most positive one for India. She's also the one that was part of the, the Boris Johnson administration in the sense of she didn't, obviously Rishi Sunak decided to go against him. She never really went against him. She at no point until right at the end, uh, she decided when essentially Boris Johnson resigning that she would step down and then went for leadership race. So that there seems to be a genuine feeling that closer relationship with India is the right thing to do. It makes logical sense. And she's talked about it a lot in her campaigning. She's talked about it a lot in public and private. So I think post Johnson, all the, all the candidates, and she was probably the most pro India from her, from the things that she's done and, and said. So I think that's definitely a positive. There's a definite movement shift. I think within the Conservative Party, I think it's been happening over the last maybe five, 10 years, where we are seeing a lot more politicians, activists, people within the movement that are becoming more and more pro-India and more and more asking the question, why don't we do more of them? Why are they not close allies? Why is there almost a friction and stuff? And I think it's being tackled and dealt with a lot. It helps in some ways for them that their relationship with the Labour Party in India is probably at its all time low. So they're almost able to benefit from that as well. So I think in some ways, I think the Truss government bodes pretty well for an India-UK relationship. Right. 
What's happening in Leicester? You know, I mean, we hear of uh, the turmoil between uh, Hindu-Muslim communities there. I guess it all started after a cricket match uh, between India and Pakistan. Or at least, I mean, that's what uh, sources claim. And there was some kind of a protest and violence broke out, etc. For those of us who are not really clued into this, could you give us a sense of, you know, what is happening? Who are the groups involved? And what does it look like? I think in the UK, we have to be honest and talk about the fact that there is an anti-Hindu movement. It's been growing for a while. I think the issue is, before we even dive into Leicester and uh, it, it trickled down even into Birmingham, before we go into that, is there is, we're two very different religions, two very different styles, but there is a lot of similarities between, in, in this country, Hindus and Jews. There is almost, we have very, very similar difficulties. And some of it is almost due to the success of our integration. So Hindus in this country and Jews... You know, I'm obviously a bit biased being Hindu, but if you talk to non-Hindus, they will tell you about how well we've integrated into society. We adopt Western customs, Western culture. And if you look at stats, they will support this. If you look at the average proportionality of Hindus in the UK, we outperform every other religion. So you're more likely on almost every scale. The only ones that actually come close to us are Jews. There's a few where they do a bit better than us. So every economic scale, we're performing on average better than everyone else. We're less likely to go to jail, for example, on social issues, we're the lowest one there. If you go on literally every parameter that you can think of, British Hindus, British Jews are exceeding all of them. And I think in some ways, in the last few, it's almost been a bit of a downfall, the fact that we've so successfully integrated in society. We demand very little. We don't really speak out much. We don't really say anything or uh, have much of a voice in, in a, a lot of things. Um, and I think it stemmed, you could see it when I think The Guardian did their post on Pri Patel, where for context, Pri Patel, our Home Secretary, Indian MP, and they portrayed her as a, a fat cow and they put nose rings all in her face. This was a front cover of, of The Guardian. I, I think that kind of sentiment shows the feeling and what it's okay to do to the Hindu community. So I think that sentiment has been rising for good or worse. It's not really helped. Uh, although he's a popular man in, with British Hindus here in terms of Narendra Modi becoming prime minister in India, it's it's probably for a lot of people here stoked even more anti-Hindu sentiment, which in my opinion was bizarre and stupid, but that's the reality of it. And very unfairly, it's done that. So there's just been that kind of rise towards it. And I think that it's kind of boiled over after the cricket match. I think it was always simmering there and it, it's been prevalent. It's Some of it's been direct in people's faces and we just decided that not to speak on it or do much about it and now it's really boiled over and we're seeing some not good scenes in, in Leicester and, and Birmingham which I think has caught media attention it's, it's interesting how again rather than focusing on the facts and what's actually happened you're seeing political movements decide to take stance we saw the Labour one of the Labour MPs on the, the, the high Labour MPs talk about how you know we need to stop Hindu nationalism you know this is what's causing essentially the riots in Leicester and Birmingham, which is far from the truth. But th this is, you know, what some other Western media outlets are doing, which is it's the Hindu nationalist Narendra Modi's movement, which has trickled into the UK. And now they're reacting like this, which is so far from the truth on every level, uh, just every word I've said in that statement. But there is that sentiment. I think that's really important to understand when we talk about Leicester and Birmingham, because although it seems out of nowhere, I think if you spoke to a lot of British Hindus and even, to be honest, just British white people, they would say very similar things. 
Yeah. No, I mean, just sitting out of India, that just seemed like a very weird sort of a proposition that somehow the RSS and the BJP were fomenting trouble outside of uh, India, right? And just have that kind of influence as well. So what are the different groups involved, Sunil? I mean, who's really at it at this point? Uh, at this point, it's literally just pure Muslims Hindus. Like it's Muslims versus Hindus, Hindus versus Muslims. So they're the, they're the two groups. It's simple. There's violence being done towards both groups, both defaming religious places. I, I would argue that we're seeing way more attacks towards Hindu temples and way more abusive behavior towards them. I think the police have been very soft. The police is amazing in this country, but I think in this instance, they have been soft and they are not taking appropriate action. We, we saw them on, on the very one, of the first days of the riots where they surrounded a, a Mandra Hindu temple here and Islamic group surrounding the temple and the police doing nothing. They're, they're going in, they're tearing down the symbols, signs, chanting, being abusive, and the police just standing there, letting them do it, letting them vandalize, essentially, the Mandan doing absolutely nothing. I think there is, yeah, there's not really, I think the appropriate action is not being taken. And look, for the record, there are some, you know, there's some Hindu people here who are also not helping the cause. There are, they are also exerting violence and not doing good things at all but it, it does seem there is a real lack of action from our police in terms of stopping these riots you know, we're seeing hate speech people who you know you, you've got some is you know you, you everyone has a right to protest right so that you know you've got some genuinely protesting whatever it's about I, on this one I, I i couldn't tell you the the exact reason for it. i don't think a lot of the people there could tell you the exact reason from it but i think there are there are genuine concerns or whatever but then you're seeing some people who are famously doing racist things towards jews hindus in the past they're giving speeches their rallies there and that's not something that we should really be allowing and i think the police are a bit worried and i think they're a bit scared of the reaction we saw that in this country with the the grooming gangs i, I don't know if that was covered much in in india the uk was heavily it was top news rightly so for a couple of weeks um, essentially it was an investigation that happened in an area in england where telford where we saw over a thousand uh, girls had basically been sexually assaulted and harassed uh, children under the age of 16 by men. And these investigate, this has been going on for 10, 15 years. And essentially the profile of all the men were British Pakistanis and the police in the report had written that they didn't further investigate a lot of these claims from parents, from children, because they didn't want to stoke racial tensions is what they put in their report. So essentially what it took was this uh, brave 19 year old girl who basically spoke out and said, by the way, I've been harassed since the age of six years old to 15 years old and no one's done anything. And then we started hearing the repercussions and thankfully now they're investigating, they're pressing charges on, on these people. But it's a sticky subject here in the UK. It's mixed media response. Some days we get a lot of it, some days, I mean, we didn't hear anything about the riots for a very long time. It's only the last maybe week if that that we've started hearing a bit more but it's not very much covered here in the uk yeah let's hope that uh, things become more peaceful as soon as possible you know finally when we kind of look at the global stage right there's been a sort of rebalancing post-covid right uh, in terms of uh, geopolitical allies and so on what are some of these geopolitical alliances for the uk that could be really important in looking into the future and in your opinion you know how do you think this will pan out I think there there's some really interesting relationships. I think that have been shown from well, actually when Liz Truss was foreign secretary, some of the the, the trade deals she was able to agree on. So India was a, a good example of. Obviously, we're, we're looking to build for that free trade deal, but a good alternative in some ways to China. I think that's one of the one things that Modi's received a lot of credit for here 
is his almost his repositioning as the alternative in some ways to China, in the sense of India being a very pragmatic alternative to uh, to China and being more in sync with Britain in terms of values and, and what they believe in. So I think that's a relationship for sure that I think we in this country will be looking to expand more and more on. I expect Australia, Canada, uh, New Zealand, we call it Kanzuki, so that the, the four countries are sure to have closer ties um, post-COVID Brexit. I think naturally all speaking the same language, lots of historic ties again, and the shortages and stuff that we have in labor, they can help us with. Australia in particular is great with agriculture. So I think they're definite places we'll be looking at probably uh, greater relationships. It's really tough to predict because you, you look at the United States with Biden and stuff, there's, you know, this, it's been quite a frosty relationship uh, again, which we never really had with the States before, especially over the Northern Ireland agreement. So that there is, you know, I expect, I think we'll always be, they'll always be our closest ally and closest friend. But I think at the moment, if we, if we like, we're having a bit of difficulty on agreeing on, on, on some things. So I, I think India will play a massive part. I think Australia, Canada, New Zealand, I think Nigeria and Ghana has been touted as places that we want to do more stuff with. They were the fastest to grow economies prior COVID. Um, so there, I think we're hopeful that, that we should do more there. So I think we'll see a much more diverse, uh, relationships with countries than we've had in the last, uh, 20 years. We've been very Europe centric and I think with Brexit, with what's happened, I think this, I think this is almost like a universal feeling on both sides that almost a, a separation and doing less with each other might be better in the, in the short term. So I think, I think we'll see a much more global Britain than we've seen in the last five, 10 years. I think we'll see really some mixed relationships. Malaysia is another one that we've talked a lot about here in this country and Singapore. Is so I think, we'll, yeah, it'll be a much more diverse set of countries that we're sort of dealing with. Right. And from our perspective, I think we'll keep a close watch on, you know, what's going to happen on the bilateral FTA negotiations. In fact, as you mentioned, I think as Trade Secretary Listras uh, had initiated the India-UK Enhanced Trade Partnership as well, ETP, right, in May of 2021. So, yeah, definitely interesting times ahead. Uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Sunil, for making the time to chat with us. And uh, yeah, we should definitely do an episode, maybe a couple of months or, uh, or so down the line, you know, when the FTA comes to a a point where you know we can talk about it right so uh thank you again for making the time and this was uh it, it was a great conversation thank you thank you Roshan. thank you thank you for tuning in to this episode of the bharatvartha podcast if you want to see more content like this then don't forget to subscribe to our channel we started bharatvartha to facilitate long-form discussions on politics policy and culture we don't necessarily endorse anything that was said in this episode if you wish to offer us feedback do reach out to us on social media. We are at Bharatvartha on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You could also get in touch with us on our website, www.bharatvartha.in. The links are in the description below. Until next time, stay safe, take care, and jai.